0: If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we started three weeks ago a series called Greater, talking about the whole deal of, of what is God's plan for our lives. Uh, we've been looking at the life of a guy in the Old Testament that some of us may already know, but uh, maybe if you didn't, it's, maybe you're learning some new things about him. I am. I haven't studied uh, the guy named Elisha in a long time. We probably know about Elijah because of some of the dramatic things that he did. But as I was sharing with you the last several weeks, Elisha, though, uh, Was more miracles that happened in his life than anybody in Scripture except for Jesus. And so it's a really uh, some neat passages of Scripture starting in the last part of 1 Kings and going through 2 Kings. And so we're in the third week of the series. Now, a couple of weeks ago we talked about that one of the ways that God wants us to have a greater life is to to burn some plows. And if you don't know what that's talking about, go back and listen to that uh, podcast. Last week he talked about the second thing he wants us to do is dig some ditches. And today we're going to talk about something else. Now today, I want to just kind of talk to you because I think today really deals with a lot of things where people are. One of the things is this, so often uh, over the years and even recently, I've encountered people who are overwhelmed with life. Just overwhelmed with all the things that are going on. I've encountered a a single mom recently who was talking to me who uh, had three kids. Uh, She was working two jobs. She was trying to, you know, make ends meet, and she was just, just saying. And this is not even somebody that comes to Great Oaks. I just ran into her somewhere, uh, met her before. Some, somebody had invited her to church once, and she uh, was out at a, a store, and, and we were talking, and she was just sharing about what how life was tough, and, and how she was overwhelmed by life. She had challenges everywhere. Um, I, I've talked to teenagers who were, who were going through tough times. Uh, recently, I talked to a young young man who, his parents had divorced, and uh, he was really struggling with that. Uh, you know, and, and how, how to deal with that. Uh, he felt like he was doing life on empty. And so today, if you're going through a challenge in life and you feel overwhelmed or empty in any way, today the message is for you. And so I have a feeling it's going to hit a lot of you this morning. I um, just want to say this about the series. Uh, one of the things we talked about is God's greater purpose in any area of our life means giving up, in a sense, some false expectations of what greatness is. Because we have this idea from the world The greatness is doing more, having more, doing all these things. But to find the greater things that God uh, wants us to have uh, means sometimes giving up on what others wish you could do and allowing God to do through you what only he can do. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to look once again at a story from the life of Elisha. Um, And we're going to look at this. When you embrace the limitations of your current life situation and you decide to trust God completely... And cooperate with him fully uh, in the season of life where you are. God can do even greater things in your life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to be in 2 Kings for this weekend, next week, as we look at two stories here. There's multitudes of stories. The struggle I had in the series was not not just figuring out exactly, uh, you know, do we have enough material, but how to pare it down because there's so many stories and so many things that help us here. And so I had to pick and choose in a sense. Uh, next week, probably one of the most impactful stories in all, of us, uh, in all of Elisha's life, and we'll look at that. But today we want to look at this uh, story in 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. It says, The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he re- revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Now, the thing we've looked at the last couple of weeks is this. Elisha first was kind of an unknown prophet for a while. He was kind of a guy who was, was kind of following along his mentor, Elijah. And as he was following him along, he was kind of walking in his, in his shadow for a long time. But then we saw last week that he stepped out of that shadow and became known. And so now, when we see in chapter four of Second Kings, we see his uh, after the success of his nationally heralded, heralded uh, ditch digging initiative, Elisha isn't the newcomer anymore. Now he's the uh, senior prophet in Israel. And, and as he does so, what happens is, as one of when one of his fellow prophets die, uh, the prophet's widow comes straight to Elisha, and she comes to him with a problem. She pours out his troubles. Not only has she lost her husband. But now the creditors are coming to take her sons away as slaves as well. You're going like, that's pretty cruel. But in that culture, that was something that was done. If you couldn't afford uh, to, to pay your creditors, uh, you could have family members, whatever, taken away as slaves. Now, it doesn't seem very great, but that's just the way it was, okay? So that was the, the situation here. Now, we don't know the name of who this fellow prophet was who had died. Uh, Jewish tradition thinks it's, the, it's a prophet named Obadiah. And Obadiah, if this was Obadiah, which uh, may be, uh, he was a prophet who had not only been a prophet who had uh, gone through life, and it was not unusual, not uncommon for a prophet to be in financial trouble because uh, they weren't the most popular people in the world. Prophets usually, uh, oftentimes told bad news to people. Uh, Sometimes good news, but a lot of times bad news. And how many of you like bad news, you know? Nobody likes bad news, you know, so the thing, they weren't necessarily um, uh, uh, popular people, so they were often in financial trouble, they were often persecuted, they were often on the run, and uh, and that's kind of what the situation here. But if he was Obadiah, Obadiah also not only would have been that way, but Obadiah was known as a prophet who had hidden and supported 50 other prophets. He felt it was his call from God to encourage and support others. So if he died, and this was Obadiah or really any prophet, it's not unusual for him to have died and not had much to support his family. And so this is what the situation is here. Now, so the grieving widow has lost her husband. The bills have piled up. And also in this culture, she was not employable. Because in that culture, in that day, women could not work. They, they were considered, you know, underneath, I couldn't, they couldn't work. And so if she didn't have sons that were old enough to work and support her, which obviously these sons weren't, this lady may have been in her early 30s, maybe mid-30s at the most, and she had young, young sons who were going to be taken into slavery. They weren't old enough to work yet, and they weren't employable. So humanly speaking, she almost had no hope whatsoever here. So keep that picture in mind as you look at the story here this morning. Now, when I think about this, I think about so often, this is a real world problem, what she had. But so often we have, we have problems that are, <laughs> they're not, we, we constantly, I've heard people complain, I complain about stuff sometimes, That I call them first world problems. You know what a first world problem is? You know, you know, you're going, my GPS took me to the wrong place again. That's a first world problem. They put too much goat cheese on my salad. I cannot believe they did that. That's a first world problem. I only have 100 friends on Facebook, and none of them like me. (laughs) That's a first world problem, okay? And we complain about that. Do we not complain about those things? Come on. We do all the time. I I learned that my son told me that's what he calls them, first world problems, you know? And the reality is, is that so often we do that. And This is not a first world problem. This was a real problem that she had. Now, this morning, some of you are going through and you have real problems in your life. Maybe not the exact same problem this lady had, but you may be going through a marriage that's 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 rocky and struggling, and you're going like, what do I do about this? Or you may be going through financial troubles and you don't know what you're gonna do and what the next step is gonna where it's gonna lead you, and you only see bankruptcy. Or you may be going through a physical problem, maybe You have cancer or whatever things going on in life, and the reality is, is that so we have to understand that when when we have these real problems, God is there for us. That's what this story is about. It's not about your first world problems, by the way. Okay, it's about the real problems that God has in life. So, how does Elisha respond to this lady? Uh, You know, does he say, "Well, it's not my problem. Good luck to you." That's not how he responds. And it would seem in this tragic situation, it seems that this great prophet, because he had done this before, would miraculously meet her need or at least give her some encouraging words. Instead, he asked a question that in a sense strikes me a little bizarre for him to be this. It almost seems uncaring in the way he approaches it. But he says this in verse 2. Elisha, replying to her, after she says, this is what's going on, he replied to her, how can I help you? That's a great start, isn't it? How can I help you? You know, when people go through problems and and they come to you, this is what we should ask first. So often people will come to you and they'll say things like, well, you know, well, I'll be thinking about you. I'll be thinking about you. What does that mean? What are you doing? I'm thinking about you. How How much does that help? Don't sit and think about them. At least pray for them, at least encourage them, but ask the question, how can I help? And that's a great start whenever somebody comes to you and they have a need, so keep that in mind. That's the first thing. But then he says this next thing, he says, then tell me what do you have in your house? What did she just say? She says, I don't have anything. She said, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I just don't have anything. And she says it outright, she says, your servant has nothing, she's talking about herself, your servant has nothing there at all. See, initially, all this lady could focus on what is what? What she didn't have. The reality is, we'll find out in just a moment, she did have a little bit. But often in life, we focus on what we don't have. And it was her exception we're going to talk about today that became the vessel for an exceptional miracle that God did. This is the connection point. We often excuse ourselves from God's greater vision for our lives because we believe we don't have enough for God to work with. Maybe we'll conf- say, well, God could use me because I, don't have, I have lackluster training or, 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 or lack of resources or I have awkward social skills or I have insufficient experience or maybe my relationships, my marriage is busted up so God couldn't use me or, or, or I ha- I'm in a dead-end job that's meaningless and God couldn't use me in any way. And the reality is that Satan will do his best to convince you that that's true. Because it's one of greatest, Satan's greatest tools. The secret is you don't need much for God to use you, as we will learn, as we will see in Scripture over and over again. But God wants to use what you have. So, but unfortunately, most of us operate out of an if-then mindset. If-then mindset. If I had this, fill in the blank, then I would do this. If I had this, I would do this. We operate with this if-then mindset. Let me give you some examples. (laughs) I love these. If I could sing, I would be up on stage serving the Lord. If my children were in different states of life, then I could get myself all together. Like that matters. I've heard this from church. I was in a meeting the other day with church, a bunch of guys that are church planters, God has recently planted churches. And, and uh, I was the guy was the old guy there, and, uh, and I was the guy that was in the uh, established church in a sense. Everybody else were church planters. And you know what one of the things they were talking about? They were saying like, well, if we had a state-of-the-art church facility, then we could grow. I'll talk about that later. <laughs> See, what do you do when you don't have much? What do you do when you don't have much? Well, verse, uh, going back to that verse, she said, uh, she said this. Uh, once again, she says, your servant has nothing there at all. Then she said this, except a small jar of olive oil. Now, was it true she had nothing? No. The truth was she had just a small jar of olive oil. Now, this doesn't sound like much in our culture. You know, on your countertops, you probably have a cake of olive oil. And you think that's all she that had? Yeah, that's all she had. But in that day, it meant a lot because it could be used in so many ways. It could be used for cooking, it could, was burned in lamps, uh, it could be used for medicine, it was used as moisturizer. You know, you couldn't get run down a bath and body works to pick up moisturizer. So this is what you used, ladies. <laughs> Olive oil. It was kind of the all-purpose thing. It was used by people when, to make leather that was become stiff, pliable again. It was used to keep iron from rusting like a, a, a you know just like oil. It was used in religious purposes for anointing. It was also used as an offering to God. And so it was used in all kinds of things. The thing is, so often, we, look, we don't think what we have as much, and so we just limit what we have and what God can do with it. I love what um, Stephen Furtick said in his book, uh, Greater. He talks about, he says, what we need to do instead of thinking, we always say, we talk about thinking outside the box. But he says what we need to do is think inside the box. Because dreaming about how God could use you to touch lives that you could sing won't make you any better singer, right? It's not going to happen. Or visualizing how much more ordered your home would be if your children were in a different stage of life won't make the living room any cleaner. Or churches, you know, imagining that your church would grow to capacity in imaginary buildings that you don't have won't work. The box is what it is. It's what you have. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't plan ahead, you shouldn't dream. Of course you should. But so often we live with this if-then thinking, and it paralyzes us in a real sense. I mean, people all the time are saying things, well, you know, people have told me this before. <clears throat> drives me crazy. Okay, this is, this is what drives me crazy, okay? People will say, you know, I say, you can host a small group in your house. And you know what they'll say? Well, my house isn't nice enough. You know, everybody knows, I mean, I'm just being facetious there. Everybody knows the only way the Holy Spirit's going to come is if you have granite countertops. (laughs) Right? Because he only hovers over granite countertops. I've known people, (laughs) I've known people who walk into a closet, I may have done this myself, a full of clothes everywhere, and what do they do? They touch them all, and then they say this, and you help me with this. I don't have... Anything to wear. You have enough clothes to clothe an African village. But you're focusing on the one thing you think you don't have or you wish you had. The reality is this. Your box is never going to expand to accommodate the dreams outside of it until you learn to trust God with what is in it. Did you hear me? Let me say that again. Your, ne- your box is never going to expand to accommodate the dreams outside of it until you learn to trust God with what is in it. So this is the first point. If you if you write the little notes and you fill in the blanks on your outline, stop waiting for what you want, and stop start working with what you have. Stop waiting for what you want, and stop and start working with what you have. You know why that's important. The reason that's important is is that it's this. I'm so thankful that I've got a God who knows how to do a lot with a little. How many times in Scripture do we have to hear that? I mean, when when, when God was calling Moses, God simply asked him this question. What is in your hand? Remember that story? If if you don't, he said what was in his hand. It It was a staff. It was just a staff, a common tool used by a common worker for a common purpose. But God used that staff, what was in his hand, for things that he couldn't even possibly imagine. He used it in transforming this tool for ordinary purposes to extraordinary purposes of turning the Nile into blood and parting the Red Sea. Then, in, then in, in the New Testament, and I could use tons of illustrations, but just two. In the New Testament, when it was feeding the 5,000, Jesus didn't send the disciples out to little Caesars, did he? No. He says, he asked them, what do you have? And they look around, and they don't have much. They found these two loaves and some fishes, and, or five loaves and some fi- two fish. And, 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 and guess what? They were more than enough. They were more than enough. There's a really cool story in Elisha too, and we're not going to use, but look at, read 2 Kings. There's a story there that parallels that in the Old Testament, that exact same story. So stop waiting for what you want, start working with what you have. The question is this, what has God placed in your hands? What has God placed in your hands? Or as Elijah would ask, what do you have in your house? Just as the widow did, you need to take inventory of what's in your house, and that's the starting point for God working something greater in your life. Instead of saying, well, I can serve God because I don't have it. And the second point is this. Offer God what you have and trust him to give you what you need. Offer God what you have and trust him to give you what you you need. It's, it's in the next few verses. In, in, in uh, uh, verses 3 through, uh, through 7, it says this. Elisha said, okay, after she said, all I have is this, is, is, I have, is I have nothing, but I do have some little bit of olive oil. She said this. Go around and ask all of your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go, I mean, ask for bunches of empty jars. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. And she left him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they brought the jars to her, and she kept on pouring. I mean, all she had was a little bit. Started pouring. She kept pouring. She kept pouring. Verse 6. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. Then he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. See, as long as the jar was, there was an empty jar, God could fill it. Keep that in mind. As long as there was an empty jar, God could fill it. See, one of the enemy's most effective strategies is to get you to focus on what you don't have, what you used to have, or what someone else has that you wish you had. He does this from keeping you looking in your house and asking, God, what can you do through what I have? The secret is, you don't need much. All God needs to take your life to a higher level is is to begin with what you have. See, a God who created something out of nothing can surely create something in your life that's greater with the little that you do have. I I, I understand this, and this is true in a life, and I'm going to spend a couple minutes talking about this, because the reality is this, and this is not a long sermon today, you're going to be surprised, you'll get out here early today, believe it or not. thought you'd appreciate that, right? How does this personally apply to, to our church? How does this personally apply to our lives? As a church, as a church, you know, I remember the early years. We thought, and that was when I was sitting in this uh, church planner meeting the other day. I thought 13, 14 years ago when I came here. Uh, we were meeting at a little elementary school. You know that? Up the street here. The school is just about not, it's going to be no more after another year or two. Okay, they're going to build a new one right here. And, uh, and so that, our old church building will no longer be there. <laughs> Isn't that sad? No, it's not sad at all. Uh, the reality is, you know, it, it's, that's what's going to happen. But we were there, and we, you know, we kept saying, God, if you will only give us, you know, a building, if you only give us a building, we'll, we can grow and reach more people for Christ. And at the time, we had like 120 or something like that when I first came here, and, and we were meeting there, and, you know, we were, you know, God started we started growing. And then we said, you know, we can't build right away because the reality is, is we don't have the resources. So God, give us the resources so we can build. And so we went to the place and we, and we got, and, and we also said we can't stay here in elementary school because it is horrible in the summer. It has no air conditioning in the big room, the gym. Any of you remember that? A few of you do. You were around that back then in, in the ancient days. Uh, and it was, so we said, okay, how can we do this? And saw us, we were praying about it, and I said, hey, let's go, let's go over to talk to the, uh, the superintendent principal at the school. And I went and talked to Jim Dancer. And, and Jim Dancer was, oh, man, the guy was the most accommodating guy I'd ever met. I don't know what you thought of Jim Dancer, but I, I think he's, you know, God used him <laughs> in incredible ways. And so he said, sure, we can work this out. We can make this happen. So we moved to the middle school, Okay. And we're going like, well, this is greater, but it's still not a building. You know, we can't grow. But we grew from 120 to 330. And I look back at the records in attendance without a building. You know how big that is. We don't don't think that's big. But you know that that 90%, 95% of churches in the United States are under 200, not 300. And then we said, okay, God, if you'll just, you know, we already had the land sitting out here and we just dreamed and dreamed and dreamed. God, if you'll give us a building and then we get this building, this is a 27,000 square foot building, some, approximately. You know, what? almost immediately within the next couple of years, we grew to about 500 in attendance and we've grown just gradually since then. And the thing is, is that we, we're going like, well, God, if you'll just, you know, give us, you know, I've heard people come to me and say, well, we need an auditorium. Huh. And I'm going like, Really? Is that the idea? You know, and after I went to went to I went to Israel recently, and I went to Africa before that. But this is Israel's not a third world country; it's a first world country. And and I went there, and I went to a church in in in, in uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Bethlehem, in a room a third this size, and I had two hundred and fifty people in that room. And I am going like, yeah, the only way to grow is to have a bigger building, to have more comfortable chairs, to encourage a consumer mindset. Is that the way we want to do church? And not that we can't reach more people. You know, do we want to stop reaching people? No, we can reach people here. But you know the thing that God has continually has told us is this. You know, there, about 20, 25 years ago, a group of church leaders in the United States got together and prayed. And they said, God, if you'll just give us 2,000 megachurches, we, we will reach people for Christ like never before. Guess what we have today in America? 2,000 megachurches. That means 2,000 in attendance or greater. That's what a megachurch definition is, by the way. You know what's happening today, though, statistically? The number of total number of people that are going to church is less than what it was before we had the 2,000 megachurches. So megachurches are not necessarily the way. And the megachurch movement is dying. Because too often what happens is in megachurches, you can get lost and not just some good mega churches that are reaching people and doing great things, but that is not the solution. The solution, you know what's happening in, in China right now, though? China has more Christians than any nation in the world with hardly any church buildings at all. You know why? Because it's, it's a Jesus movement, not just a planting movement of people, house to house to house, reaching people for Christ. The reality is, is that so often we simply say, well, we can't do it unless we have this. But I would say God wants us to take what we have. And we're getting ready to free up a lot of stuff we're going to talk about here soon. And how does God want us to use the resources that we have when we pay off our debt in about three and a half months, four months? And how does he want us to take what we have there and use it to expand God's kingdom? Maybe it's, we grow some here, but also we reach communities around us because we have people coming from Roanoke and from Washburn and from other communities. And you know why they come here? It's a 20 to, 30, 20 to 25 minute drive from those locations. Because there's not a life-giving church in that community. So what's God telling us to do? He says, use what you have, and I will multiply. I don't know what God has for the future, but I know this, that if we take and hold loosely what God has given to us, that God is going to expand things and make it something we couldn't even imagine. That's what God wants to do in our lives. That's, in, in, uh, as a church, is personally. So often we say, well, you know, I, we think it like, you know, you may not have the opportunity to stand on, a, on stage at a football stadium and preach the gospel like Billy Graham. <laughs> Nobody, not too many people do, by the way, okay? He has preached to millions. But ask the question, who works in your office that needs to know the love of Christ? Share it with them. And maybe your co-worker will be the next Billy Graham. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but that's how it started with the first one actually it was a shoe salesman that shared Christ with him. So if you, you know some of us say well you know I would love I would love to take a mission trip to Peru for a month or wherever it might be that you want to go and the thing is maybe you don't have the resources right now the time or whatever but maybe what you need to do is is there a local need that that has been identified here that you can contribute it to maybe one day a month or whatever. If there isn't one, start something. There are people in this church who have started ministries outside the walls of this church that are impacting our community for Christ in ways we can't even imagine. Do you know at the resale store this past year down the street, it was on Facebook this week, last year gave away $48,000. And you know how that came about? Some people had a dream that God could take what little they had, and if they gave it to God, God would use it in miraculous ways. You don't have to sit around and wait for somebody else to do it for you. Take what you have and give it to God, and God will use that in ways you can't even imagine. Maybe you can't write a $20,000 check to a ministry you believe in, but maybe a $25 a month pledge to something would help begin to stretch your faith a little bit while making a big difference through meeting a small need. See, it's kind of like this. Your greatest limitation is God's greatest opportunity. Your greatest limitation is God's greatest opportunity. (laughs) Do you notice in the story of of, of the woman and the oil in the jars do you notice what, how specific that Elijah, Elisha was in regards to the jars? He didn't want specific at all. He said, just go get a bunch of jars. It could have been, could have been milk jugs, honey jars, uh, coffee cans, butter tubs. He didn't say what it was. He said, just go get all of them you can. You know what that means? God can use any vessel of any type, of any shape. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to be a certain age. You're never too young. You're never too old. The key is, Elisha said, the tub has to be what? Empty. It has to be empty. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure. What's the treasure? God, God's spirit. In jars of clay. What are the jars of clay? Us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Often in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, uh, oil is a symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And we're the jars, and God wants to fill us with with himself. But so often we're so full of pride or greed or selfishness that what God says, empty yourself of what doesn't matter. And God says, if you do that, I will fill you up with what does matter. Instead of exhausting yourself with the if-then mentality, What if you started looking at your life this way? Well, if God wanted me to have blank, he would have provided it for you. If he wanted you to have blank, he would have made it for you. But he didn't. So there must be something. This is the way to look at it. Instead of talking about what you don't have, there must be something greater he wants to do through your limitation. He must have something in mind that's beyond your capacity to think upon your own. And that shouldn't surprise us because his ways are higher than our ways. It says it over and over and over again in Scripture. So, I would challenge me and I would challenge you today to quit looking at what we don't have. And look at what we do have. And when we discover what we do have, say, God, what would you like me to do with what I have for you? Instead of always praying, God, bless me more, dare to pray this. God, use what I have. Take what, I, what little I have and make it overflow for you. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Great lesson from Scripture. Are we going to apply it? First thing this week is to do to take inventory. What do you have that, you, that, you can, that God can use? And give it to him, and he will do something you can't even possibly imagine. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for this time of worship together. We pray that you would just enable us to understand your heart and, 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 and know what it is that you want us to, to, to do with, with what we have. God, you have given every person in this room something. You've given us gifts and abilities and experiences and passions. You've given us all these things, God, and you want us to use them for you. And God, nothing pleases you more than to say, Well done. Because it'll mean that we have looked at what we have and have not limited ourselves to saying, "Oh, I wish I had this if, I could, if if," and go by if, then living." But what it does in a real sense is it allows us God to free up our lives in a way that we've never experienced, and it li- allows us to live the greater life that you have for us. It may not be considered greater by the world's standards. But God, any time. That we take what we have and we give it to you and you use it. It will be greater by your standards and God, it will bless our lives beyond imagination. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for your incredible love. Guide us, guide us this week that we would take inventory of our lives, that we would examine where we are, that we would confess to you. And repent of the sin of wanting more simply for the sake of being focused on ourselves. That we would allow you, God, to do more as we focus on what we have and turn it over to you. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.